Ah, thank you guys. I appreciate that so much. Always enjoy hearing uh, men sing and play. Not that I don't appreciate and hear ladies singing and playing, but I think there's a little bit of a stereotype that if you are a man and you play an instrument or you sing, uh, that there's something, you know, effeminate about that. And uh, I just love to see the young men in our church sing like men, play like men. And I, that, that was a blessing to me. That's a good old song. I keep thinking of hearing Curtis Hudson sing that. And uh, man, it was sort of a blessing. I appreciate that, guys. And uh, I wanted my kids to grow up. I got two sons, and both of them play instruments and are pretty musical. And I wanted them to have that ability. I wanted them to wrestle and be strong and be physical and those kind of things. But I also wanted them to be musical as well and use their talents and abilities for the Lord. And so that's great. I think about that when I was a teenager, uh, I never had any problem getting in front of people and, and talking. Uh, but, and I know a lot of people are scared about that kind of thing, but I would have never sung in front of anybody. I just, that, that scared me to death. I guess it was pride, really. I'd sing a bad note and everybody'd laugh at me or something like that. But, um, you know, I appreciate that, guys. Appreciate all the p- folks that sang this week, and that was a blessing. And thank you for contributing to the services and exalting the Lord. Thank you for having me. Um, I don't know how many times I've been here for revival, um, but I always look forward to this and appreciate coming here very much. Uh, just because I love being around your pastor. I love your pastor very much. He has invested so much in my life, and I'm so eternally grateful for the spiritual influence he's had on me, so I enjoy my time with him. I also enjoy the opportunity to come and get to see my family. I don't get to see them very much, and so uh, to be able to do that, that's nice. And then to preach here and be with you and to watch the church grow and develop and, and uh, be a part of that, that's, that's really awesome too. So I just want to thank you for your generosity and your kindness and your attendance and your attention and all of those things. Uh, Thank you for making it easier to preach. Uh, I believe that everybody should have to sit on the platform at least once in their Christian life and watch what the preacher has to preach to on a regular basis. And you know, it makes a difference when somebody has the ministry of smiling, you know, and uh, they pay attention and they nod and they say amen and all of those kind of things. And you have been, been a joy to preach to and to be with this week. And I thank you for that. I want to thank the staff at Bible Baptist Church. Thank you guys for faithfully serving alongside your pastor. He speaks often of the good job that you're doing and the blessing that you are to him, the way that you, like Aaron and her, hold up his arms and help him. You know, one man can only do so much. And to have uh, like-minded people who who help him extend himself is a tremendous blessing. And so thank you uh, for for doing that and uh, being a part of that. Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 48. Psalm 48. Uh, tonight, what I would like to do, um, I just feel like, uh, like they sang about, nothing between my soul and the Savior. I hope by this point of the revival, y- your heart is, is closer to the Lord than it was when we started. If it's not, I don't know what else I can do about it. Um, I like Psalm 19 when David said, cleanse thou me of secret faults. I don't believe that David was saying there, cleanse me from things that other people don't know about. I think he was saying, cleanse me from things I don't even know about. You see, I'm so sinful in my nature that I offend God in ways I don't even realize and recognize. And I've added that, that verse to my prayer life on a regular basis because you know, I just sometimes don't you just get so overwhelmed with the idea, I want to be right with God, and if there's something in my life I don't even know about God, please forgive me of that and help me with that. And... Uh, Tonight, I I don't have a message necessarily where I want to correct some behavior in our life or challenge us to do better in something in our life. 
Well, what I want to do tonight is I just want to exalt our God. And and the truth of the matter is, is there's a great need for that when it comes to revival. If we just get a fresh glimpse of who God is, who the Lord is, I think that that would spark revival in our life. And so let's end on that note tonight. Let's stand together, please. And we're going to read Psalm 48 in its entirety. It's just 14 verses. And so please follow along with me there as we read. Great is the Lord, and because He's great, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, on the sides of the north, the city of the great King. He's talking about Jerusalem here. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. For lo, the kings were assembled, they passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled and hasted away. Fear took hold upon them there, and pain as of a woman in travail. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. He's being very poetical, but he's talking about the greatness of the city. And he's emphasizing that the city was great because its God was great. We'll talk more about that. Verse 8, as we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it forever, Selah. That that phrase, they don't entirely know what that means, but generally it's understood to mean a pause in the music and pause to stop and think about what was just said or sung. Verse 9, we have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces, that ye may tell it to the generation following. For this this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. I want to preach to you tonight about being overwhelmed by greatness. Overwhelmed by greatness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I do want to thank you so much for the privilege to stand in this pulpit and a minister to these precious people. And I want to thank you for this pastor that loves this flock and is leading them in a biblical path. And I pray that your blessings will continue to be rich upon them, that you would continue to send people their way and help them to reach people with the gospel and impact their lives, their homes, their families, their community. And I pray that as one more time as we've gathered together, I pray that we would leave here tonight overwhelmed by your greatness and that there would continue for, for many weeks, maybe months to follow, a spark of revival in our heart of love for our Lord, gratefulness for the gospel, a passion for our church. And I pray that you just uh, uh, build that tonight. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Maybe may be seated. Appreciate you standing. I'm sure even if you're not a connoisseur of classical music, you're familiar with the name Beethoven. Ludwig von Beethoven has his home that he grew up in is preserved in Bonn, Germany, and it's been made into a museum. You can go there, you can go tour through it. And in this home that's been preserved as a museum is a piano that he composed most of his works on this particular piano. Some of the greatest works that he ever composed, he, he did that on this piano. In fact, you would, you, you would have to say that this piano is priceless. I don't know that you can put a price tag on it, but I'm told that it would be estimated over $50 million. And I, I, I really believe it would be worth more than that. And I don't know that you could put a price tag on something like that. Uh, True story, there was a group of students from Vassar College that were visiting this museum and they were going through and 
the tour guide was kind of leading them through, and there was that piano was kind of roped off in a section. And one of the young ladies in that group from Vassar College was a trained concert pianist herself, and they, they kind of collected their money together and bribed the tour guide to let her play on that piano. And so she sat down and she played the Moonlight Sonata. If you know classical music, you'll be familiar with that piece. And she played it and played it very well, and it was uh, beautifully done. And, and of course, the students were kind of impressed, and they all applauded when she was done. And she kind of stepped back, and, and she said to the, the tour guide there, the guard that was kind of watching things, and she said, I suppose that all of the greats have come through here and, and played on this piano. And he said, actually not. He said, let me, let me tell you a story. He said, uh, a couple of years before today, a composer you may have heard of, Ignacy Paderewski, came through here. If you like classical music, I like classical music. I listen to it a lot when I study and so forth. It helps my mind to focus, and, and I, I enjoy it. And I like Paderewski a lot. Uh, very, I mean, some of his menus are wonderful. And so uh, he's a very, very well-accomplished, well-known classical pianist himself. He was passing through there. And one of the people there asked him and begged him to play on the piano, and he refused. And with tears in his eyes rolling down his face, he said this, I am not worthy to touch that piano. I think that's kind of a contrast of opinions there, isn't it? Here on one end, you have a trained classical pianist in college. Sits down and plays a piece on the piano and is impressed with herself. Here's another pianist who is worldwide renowned. We're still listening to his pieces today. I mean, in his own right, he would not be considered to the level of Beethoven, but he, he would be considered an amazing pianist. And he said, I'm not even worthy to touch that. You see, the difference between those two people is one of them had a sense of awe and the other did not. I'd like to define to you the word awe here. I'll give you a textbook definition. It just says this, the feeling of being in the presence of greatness of being exposed to that which is transcendent or extraordinary. I would say to you tonight, we really are living in a time of all deprivation. I think we have a generation of people that don't know what it really means to be overwhelmed by greatness, something that's extraordinary, something that's beyond ourselves, something that is bigger and greater than, than our own personal being. And I, I think some of it might have to do with our advancements in technology and, and those kind of things. I mean, we are living in a ge generation where things that we thought were impossible have really happened, and, and because of that, they happen so rapidly, they've become mundane and very unimpressive. I mean, think about it tonight. Some of you that are older, like uh, maybe myself and beyond, how many of you thought we would live to see the day where things in the Jetsons cartoons have actually happened? I mean, did you really think that was going to happen? I mean, did you really think you were going to have video calls with your boss? And that happened on the Jetsons a long time ago. Did you really think you're going to have robots vacuum your floor for you? I noticed your church has several robots that vacuum the floors for you. I'm just waiting for a car that can fold up into a briefcase. I mean, I mean, we're waiting for it, you know? And because things have happened and they've happened so amazingly and so quickly, it's almost as if we have lost the ability to be impressed with things. It's as if teenagers, not, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, down on you, I'm just saying sometimes we look at things and we go, meh. We've lost the ability to be wowed. And what I'm saying to you this evening is we cannot allow ourselves to lose our sense of awe about God. And I'm afraid that we have. I'm afraid because there has been an all-out attack on anything that is traditional 
in church life. I'm not talking about political life. I'm not talking about cultural wars. I'm talking about in church life where, where life in the church has become increasingly casual. Again, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything bad about this, but there was a day where a pastor was revered because of his office, and, and now he's just called by his first name and slapped on the back. I, I, again, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to wade into all of that. I want to talk about the glory of God tonight, but I'm just simply saying I think in some ways we have lost our sense of all of God. Here in Psalm 48, we see here that this is the third psalm in response to some great deliverance that Jerusalem experienced from a very powerful enemy. If you go back and you look at Psalm 46, 47, and 48, you're going to find that they have that same theme, and they're rejoicing over this great deliverance that God has wrought over their enemy. Now, you cannot be dogmatic about it. I mean, I guess you could if you wanted to, but really we don't have any more evidence than our speculation and our our logic and reasoning, but it seems that it's connected to when God delivered Israel and delivered the city of Jerusalem from Assyria during the times of King Hezekiah. You'll find this record in 2 Kings chapter 18 and chapter 19. If you'll remember the story, and I don't want to assume that everybody does, but you'll remember that The Assyrian army is traveling south, and they're just conquering everything in its wake. And they get to Israel, they get to Jerusalem, and they're ready to take it all. And and Hezekiah, what he does is he goes and he kind of ransacks the temple, and he takes anything valuable out, and he pays tribute to the king of Assyria to just kind of let him move on and leave him alone. And the king of Assyria accepts this tribute, and, and, and they think everything's in the clear, and he says, you know what, I'll take this tribute, but I think I'll take the city just the same. Well, they hole up in the city and they, they, they are besieged there. And in fact, if you, some of you that have been to Israel maybe have already seen uh, Hezekiah's conduit that he built under the city. It's still there today. And that's how he piped water in. And they, they thought they were going to smoke them out, so to speak. But man, they were still able to get things in and they were holed up in that city. And, and man, you have this guy, Reb Shekha, and he's, he's taunting them. And he's saying, hey, listen, all these gods out there, they, you, you, the cities of the north, they had their gods and they didn't save them. What makes you think your gods going to say, hey, don't listen to and Isaiah the prophet is in there and he's preaching encouraging messages telling them to hold on and hold the fort and all of that and Reb is out there taunting them and mailing them letters and and trying to just break down their will and all of this is going on and, and what happens if you remember in, in that story over in the cover of darkness in the middle of the night one angel is sent and 185,000 Assyrians in their army are just completely wiped out in one night Most Bible students and scholars believe that Psalms 46, 47, and 48 are songs of rejoicing over that event. And it it does make sense. Now, if you're paying careful attention, remember Psalms is a book of poetry. And so when you come to verse 7, it says, Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. You think, well, that, that can't be this story. I mean, this wasn't a naval war. This was an army war. But if you pay attention to his, his poetry here, what he's basically saying, the winds of Tarshish, uh, an east wind comes in and breaks the ships. He's saying in a very poetic way, some invisible force dealt some deadly blow. And so it still seems to fit that that's kind of what is describing uh, the events here in this particular passage. Now again, you can't be dogmatic about it, but for sake of argument, that's what we're going to assume as we move along in in our study here tonight. The psalmist is, we, we pointed this out when we read, he's connecting his praise to a place. He's connecting it to Jerusalem. And I want to remind you tonight 
that Jerusalem was a great city, not because, man, you, you can go to some great cities. I don't know if you've traveled America much. If you've been to San Francisco, I think San Francisco, I know it's connected to some debauchery, but if you ever have the chance to go to San Francisco, one of, it's a beautiful, wonderful city. Lots of wonderful things to do there. Chicago or New York City or something like. Some of you maybe have been to Europe and been to Paris and all of these great cities. But Jerusalem itself, Jerusalem was a great city, not because the city itself, it was great because it had a great God. Amen. And I want you to think about that tonight. I want you to think about somebody that you know and you would say, oh, they're a great Christian. And I know that word can be mundane and overused at times, but I want you to think of somebody and say, oh, they're a great Christian. Hey, you be reminded that they're not a great Christian necessarily because they in and of themselves have some greatness. We ought to say like the Apostle Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God. You see, if you see any greatness in a Christian, it is not because they have ascended to greatness. It's because God has done great things in their life. Then if you listen to somebody preach and you say, oh man, I tell you what, they're a great preacher. Hey, just mind you, hey, there is no preacher that can do anything in and of himself. If you find somebody and you think, man, they've got great abilities, who gave them those abilities? God sure did. Who gave them then that mind to think? Who gave them that mouth to speak? Who gave them that power to influence? Oh, it was God. And a preacher is only great because God is great. If you walk in the doors of a church and you say, I tell you what, that's a great ministry. That's a great church. I tell you, souls are being saved and lives are being changed and people are being impacted and communities are being changed that's a great church oh it's only a great church because it has a great god inside of it and so as he extols this city he talks about jerusalem and he and he's really recognizing the greatness of god and can i say this tonight i understand that we're living in a pluralistic society and and outside the walls of this church it may not be accepted to say the things that i'm about to say but i'm going to say them anyway because they're biblical they're true they're right I want you to know tonight that God is greater than any man. Amen. Isn't that what the book of Job says? Job 33 and verse 12. He just plainly says just that. God is greater than any man. And I want to tell you tonight, this is not accepted in our pluralistic society. He is greater than any gods. I know you're not supposed to say that. I know you're not supposed to say that your way is better than anybody else's way. But I'm telling you tonight, God is greater than any other God's little G. Aren't you thankful tonight that our God has eyes that He can see and ears that He can hear and a mouth that He can speak and hands that He can move and that He can act? I would like to say what the psalmist said in Psalm 95 and verse 3. For the Lord is great. The Lord is a great God and a great King above all God's little G. I want to say what we said the other night when we were studying the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than everyone and He is better than everything. I want you to know tonight that God is greatness personified. Psalm 145 and verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. I want to tell you tonight you have a pastor that's read the Bible from cover to cover over again and over and again and over and again and has a good grasp on theology and is trying to teach you what he knows from the book and you are a great body that trying to absorb that and learn that yourself. But I'm going to tell you, you can have a hundred pastors who teach you for thousands of years and they'll never get to the bottom of the barrel of how great our God is. Why? His greatness is unsearchable. And I'm just telling you tonight, you can never really grasp how great He truly is. I'm not trying to get hooky spooky on, here, on you here tonight, but you ever been in the presence of God and gotten goosebumps? 
You understand what goosebumps are scientifically? They're really just the construction of your, uh, a constriction of your skin surrounding your hair follicles, and, and we recognize that. And, and you'll know that animal life gets goosebumps. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. They get them when they feel threatened or they feel attacked. I mean, I have a dog who's a, he's a mutt from the pound, and he thinks he's something. And he'll get all worked up, and the, the dander on his, I'm the fur on his back, he'll just get some goosebumps, and those things will go up. But do you understand that humans get them not when we feel the sense of being attacked or threatened? You know, many times we get goosebumps when we have the feeling of awe. You ever been in the presence of God and just, whew. Does, I guess I'm asking you tonight, does God ever just give you some goosebumps? I want to point out from our psalm tonight, just try to be a blessing to you. Two reactions to the greatness of God. You'll see it in our text. Two reactions to the greatness of God. Number one, God's greatness moves us to worship. Look at verse 9. We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. I always say this to our church family. I like to define it. I know the Bible doesn't necessarily define it this way, but I think it's an easy way for us to remember it. Praise is thanking God for what he's done. How many of you tonight would say, I've got so much to praise the Lord about? Amen. I, I, don't, I hope you don't mind me having you raise your hand. It's just good to testify every once in a while. I think it helps keep you awake a little bit too. How many of you say, God's, been good. God's done so much for me, I can't even begin to tell you all the th good things God's done in my life. How many feel that way? Okay, well, sometimes that's just praising God, and we should praise God for who He is. Or praise God for what He's done. You should praise Him for what He's done. He's done a lot of things in your life, and we ought to recognize it. To, to not recognize it would be ungrateful, and un be ungrateful would be a sin. But I think if you just love somebody for all they do for you, that's very shallow. If I, my wife were here tonight, I'm so thankful for all the things she does for me. She does a lot for me. But if I just loved her for what she did for me, that'd be very shallow. Oh no, worship is not just praising God or thanking God for what He's done. Worshiping is adoring Him for who He is. Many of the Psalms just focus on who He is. He's righteous, He's good, He's gracious. He's wisdom. He's, he's strong. I mean, you ought to read your Bible every day and try and find things that God is. Why? Because when you are recognizing His greatness, that's something He is, you're just kind of overwhelmed by, by who He is, not everything that He's done. And God's deliverance of Jerusalem here is, is all the more remarkable when you consider the moral and spiritual state of the country of, at the time. Again, I've said this a little bit throughout this week. Sometimes we just get overwhelmed by how bad things are in our political world and our cultural world, and we just kind of get down on all of those things. Well, you understand we're not the only generation that's ever lived in a dark and troublesome time. And I'm afraid that sometimes Christians act like we're the only ones that have experienced this phenomenon. At the time of this writing, if it happened during Hezekiah's reign, if we're talking about that era... Hezekiah, when he became king, the temple was in absolute disarray. If you remember, his father Ahaz was not a good man. He was not a good king. And if you remember, he went in and he had removed all the old furniture from the temple and he had gone down to Assyria of all places and he had studied and examined their temple and he said, look, then they've got altars that are way bigger and way fancier and way finer than, than what we have. And he came back and he got rid of all the old furniture out of the temple and he replaced it with new furniture fashioned after pagan worship. Sound like anything that's going on in our world today? 
Oh, this is way too traditional. You know what we need? We need to make this look more like a nightclub. Let's darken this thing up here and put some blue lights and spotlights and fog machines and have a cool band in here and all of that kind of stuff. What are we doing? We're fashioning ourselves after the pagans of the world. Same thing. It went on thousands of years ago and it's going on just the same today. This was the time that Hezekiah was ministering to, just like our day. And Hezekiah, when he came, don't you love that? Even though his dad was a bad man, that didn't mean he had to be a bad man. He chose his own path and he decided not for me. As for me and my house, I'm going to do what's right. And he goes in and he cleans out the temple and he restores it and he gets it all set up. He brings Jerusalem back to his glory. And, and again, to extol the virtues of, of Hezekiah a little bit, when Rebshekah is mocking God and his people, Hezekiah, he's in there and he's, he's spreading out these letters and he's telling God his troubles and he's praying and he's seeking the mind of God and he's thinking about God. And he recognizes what we see in this text, that thoughts about God should inspire worship. Our church has a Christian school, and I'm thankful for that ministry, and my kids have all gone there. I've had two that graduated from there, and one that, uh, three more that will graduate from there. And Every morning when I go to school with my kids and, and have them in the car with me, we pray. It's just our habit to pray together before we go into the day, and I'll often ask them, uh, what can I pray with you about? And a lot of times it's, well, I have a science test today, or we have basketball tryouts this afternoon, or whatever is, is going on in their life, and that's good for me to connect with them and hear them. And I think it's important not to just pray for your children. I think it's important to pray with your children, so we pray together. And, and one of the prayers, I don't pray it every day, but it's a prayer I pray regularly for my children right there in their presence. I ask the Lord, I ask Him for this. I say, help my children to think many thoughts of you today. Because it's easy for us to go through a 24-hour period and forget about our God, isn't it? In fact, the Bible wrote about that. Can a, can a bride forget her attire? I mean, have you ever seen a bride at a wedding come down the aisle in her blue jeans and everybody say, where's your dress? And she said, well, I forgot it. They don't forget it. But he says, yet my people have forgotten me day without number. And I understand tonight when we think many thoughts of God and think correct thoughts of God, it inspires us to worship. And that runs contrary to a lot of the ways in which we do worship. And we do ministry. You say, what do you mean? Because I think we live in a how-to world. You say, what do you mean? I'll give you one word for that. YouTube. I'm thankful for YouTube. It's helped me fix my dryer, and I'm not a very mechanical guy. It's helped me fix my dryer. It's helped me change parts in my car. It's helped me do a variety of things. YouTube is kind of a blessing. I mean, if you want to know just about how to do anything, just get on YouTube. Not right now, but you can later. And I think we have this mentality when we come into church, we just have this how-to mentality when we come into church. I mean, we want the preacher to tell us how to get rid of our depression. We want the preacher to tell us how to have a good marriage. We want the preacher to tell us how to raise our kids. And, and, and even in our Sunday school classes, we want to teach our kids how to be a good friend and how not to cheat and how to tell the truth. And, and, and you say, well, what's wrong with those? There's not a single thing wrong with anything that I just said. And I'm thankful that this church and my church and churches like our churches are doing just that. They're equipping people and teaching them the how-to of life. But what I'm afraid of is what has happened is the goal has become self-improvement rather than glorifying a holy God. And then we come into a, a situation like this and I'm preaching on something like I'm preaching on and people are kind of like, yeah, come on, let's get on with it. Give me something that's going to make my life better. I'm going to tell you right now, when you get in the shadow of the glory of God, it'll make your life better. 
But I'm afraid you have a pastor who'll stand up and preach on a Sunday night about doctrines. And what's he teaching? He's teaching things about who God is and sometimes feels the need that he has to apologize because maybe it's not as exciting or it's not as informative or it's not as helpful. And I'm, again, I'm thinking the result has become a self-improvement mentality rather than I exist in whatsoever I do to glorify God. And so we come back to verse one, great is the Lord. And because he is great, that's worship, right? Understanding who he is, what's the result? He's greatly to be praised. I want you to know tonight when visitors come in this room and they visit Bible Baptist Church, I think that they should walk out of here concluding these people must be worshiping a great God because their worship is great. And I think we just just determined tonight to give our great God, the great praise that He deserves because worship is the proper response to divine mercies. So what do you, what do you mean? I'll give you a quote. You've heard the historical name Napoleon Bonaparte. Yes, I'm talking about that Napoleon Bonaparte. He said this, If Socrates would enter the room, we should rise and do him honor. But if Jesus Christ came into the room, we should fall down on our knees and worship Him. And there's some great men in this world. There are people that we stand and we applaud. But if Jesus were to walk into this room tonight, there would be no standing ovations. Every one of us would fall right on our faces. And we would recognize the greatness and the glory of the one true God. When was the last time you were just overwhelmed by the greatness of God? You felt those goosebumps. I, I mean, literally, you came to an altar. I'm not trying to push buttons to manipulate you to move. I, I'm not talking about that. When was the last time you went in your own prayer closet and you shut the door and you fell down and you were just overwhelmed? See, because when you get a little bit of a glimpse of who He is, it will move you to worship Him. You're going to say stupid things like, well, J.C.'s up in this house. What's up, dude? Oh, no. Overwhelmed by a sense of awe. Number two, I want you to see this. God's, God, the, His greatness moves us, number one, to worship. But number two, it moves us to witness. Look again, verse 10. According to thy name, O God, so is praise unto the ends of the earth. He's, he's talking about telling other people how great He is. To the ends of the earth. Why is it this church uh, spends thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to support missionaries and send them around the world to tell them what you're telling them here in Fairfield, Ohio. Why? Because he's a great God. You want the world to know about it. Yes. Notice what he says in verse 13. Mark you well her bulwarks, consider her pastors that you may tell it to the generation following. He says there, I, 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 God is so great, I want to tell the world about it. And God is so great, I, I want little kids to know about it. I, I want teenagers to know about it. I want generations to come know it. I want my grandchildren to know about it. I want my great-grandchildren to know about it. I want everybody to know about it. I want to know how God, great God is. Let's come back to our text for just a moment. The residents of Jerusalem had been cooped up within the walls of the city because they had been besieged by this Assyrian army. And now they're kind of, you get the idea in verses 11 and 12 and 13 that they're kind of coming out. I mean, man, the walls are, or the gates are opened up now and, and, and business is moving again. And, and, and basically, I kind of get the uh, uh, image here that the psalmist is inviting God's people to kind of take a tour around the city. 
Notice what he says there. He says, let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad. In verse 11, because of thy judges, walk about Zion. Come on, let's take a tour around the city. Walk around Zion with me. And he says, go round about her. Look at the towers and mark well her bulwarks, her walls, her fortresses, and consider her palaces and mansions that you may tell it to the generation following. Notice what he's doing. He's saying, look at her, ta- look at her towers. They're, they're still standing there with no damage done to them. Come follow me. Look, look here. Look, look at her ramparts, the bulwarks around her, the outer walls. I tell you, they're unscathed. Not a brick is missing. And look at these palaces, these beautiful houses and castles that line our land. They're all standing strong and magnificent, just like they were before the Assyrian army came down. That's what I see him saying. I mean, it's a double-decker bus tour going on in this city. And when you see all of these things still standing, you understand what he's saying there. He's saying this is a testimony of God's greatness, and it's a testimony of God's faithfulness to his people. He delivered us in one night. He saved us, and everything is standing. I mean, they were taunting us. They were telling us that no God could deliver them. They had defeated many other gods. But our God was greater than anything they ever ran up on. And it is still standing as strong and as magnificent as it ever has before. You can imagine in your mind that this was the most talked about event, not only in Judah, but in every country around the world. I'm telling you, this would have been on all the nightly news outlets. Everybody would have been talking about it. Everybody would have heard far and wide. Did you hear that the God down in Judah and Israel, the the God down in Jerusalem has saved the people of Israel from from the hand of the mighty army of the Assyrians? Have you read about this? And everybody was talking about it. But I've marked up in my Bible, I want you to pay attention to verse 8, I love it. As we have heard, so have we seen. Oh, you need to mark that phrase. You understand that this the generation here that we're, we're reading about in Psalm 48 is much like the generation here today. Meaning this, they've heard things. They've heard about what God has done. But now, they've seen it with their own eyes. Think about it. The Israelite there was talking about, and we could say the same thing. I've always heard how God had delivered Israel from the bondage of Egypt. Are you like me? Did you grow up hearing that? I heard about how Moses walked around in the desert and ran into a bush that was on fire but wasn't being consumed, and the bush started talking to him. And God said, I want to deliver my people from Egypt. And Moses took a stick in his hand. And he went down, and, and, and do you remember reading about that? Did they tell you about that in Sunday school, those of you that grew up in church? And, and he took that stick, and he put it down in the river, and the river turned into blood. Did, did, you, did you read in there when it, when it talked about how frogs came out everywhere? There were frogs in their bed, and frogs in their house, frogs in their ovens, frogs everywhere. And, and then God sent lice, and God sent boils, and God sent darkness. and God, God did all of these nine plagues, and eventually he, he brought the people out of Israel. Hey, look, you read just about any historical record of the nation of Israel, and they're talking about that. In fact, Jews today that are still practicing the Jews, they're talking about that event that God delivered them. But listen, that generation was saying, we all always heard that God was a God of deliverance, but I'm going to tell you right now, we've seen it with our own eyes. Hey, is this a generation that can say the same thing? Can you say, I've always heard how God could deliver people, but then one day, I know I met him in June of 1984, and he delivered me from the greatest enemy of all. He delivered me from sin, and I'm telling you, I'm born again, saved on my way to heaven, and I'm glad about it, because I've not just heard about how God can deliver somebody, I've seen it with my own eyes. 
No, I grew up hearing about David and Goliath. One of my favorite stories, I tell it over and over and over again. Man, I'm getting old. I do a junior camp just about every year, and I don't know why they have an old gray head like me, a man like me do junior, church, junior camp every year. But I'll tell you this one kid, he's in college now. He said, man, you're my favorite junior camp speaker. I'll never listen to David and Goliath the same after hearing you tell about it. I grew up telling about, hearing about David and Goliath and telling David and Goliath. That's a great story. Man, you hear about this little teenage boy take out a nine foot nine giant? I mean, if he was nine foot nine, could you imagine that he probably weighed 600 pounds and he wasn't obese either? Could you imagine the size of his melon when that rock it buried itself? I mean, you do the math, you're going to find out. His coat of mail was 150 pounds. His spearhead was 16 pounds. I mean, he was a big, old, nasty, ugly dude. And my favorite part of the whole story is David cutting his head off. I've heard that story. I've heard that story that God is able to slay giants. But this crowd said, I've seen Him do it. You ever seen God slay a giant in your life? You ever looked at a problem so big and ugly and stinky and hairy, you didn't know how you were going to get around it, through it, over it? You, never th- you didn't think it would, it would ever be defeated? It was going to crush you? Some of you know what it's like to have the demon of, of addiction on you. Some of you know what it's like to have the demon of, of depression on you. Some of you know what it's like to have the demon of pride on you or anger on you. And you thought, I'll never slay that giant, but you've watched God come and have it come and tumble him down. And I'm asking you tonight, are you one of these can say, we've always heard about it, but now we've seen it. That's what they're talking about in this passage. Man, I've always heard how God changed Peter. I love that passage. Peter, I can't use you until you're converted. That trips a lot of people up because they think, wasn't Peter already saved? That word converted just means changed. Peter, I can't use you to change. I was thinking about that tonight when I was getting ready for this sermon. So I look around the room. Some of you knew me when I was a teenager. And I don't want to give the impression, I don't think Brother Wally's giving the impression I was a terrible teenager or anything like that, but I was a teenager. But I hope when you hear me preach at 45 years old, I hope you're not thinking about the 16 or 17-year-old Michael Jones. I hope you look and say, man, God sure changed that dude. Because he has. I've not just heard about it. I've seen it happen in my own eyes. And listen to me, especially you teenagers. You've got a wonderful group of teenagers. I appreciate the work you're doing with these teenagers. But listen to me. I hope you're not just sitting here saying, well, we always heard these Bible stories. And we hear these old people talking about how good God is and churches and this and that. And I remember the good old days people got baptized and saved. And you hear about, no, 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 I want you to see these things with your own eyes. Quit talking about what God used to do and start talking about what God is doing today. Maybe some of you sitting over here and you've heard your parents speak of salvation. You can't just listen to your parents talk about being saved. You need to be saved. Maybe you hear your pastor talk about how God answers prayer. You ever seen God answer one of your prayers? I mean, have you ever gotten stirred up about something and said, I need God to do this in my life and watched him do it? Man, you should be able to say, as we have heard, so have we seen. And when that happens, church, then tell the next generation who weren't yet alive to see this firsthand, what the Lord did to save His people. Because this psalmist is showing us something very important in church life tonight. And I'm coming in for a landing. Every generation has to pass along the next. Number one, who God is. Do not give the precious little children in this room that are sitting around here the wrong impression about who God is. 
I know we have a Wednesday night program much like what you have. We have a little different one. Ours is really based on a systematic theology model. We start with the Bible and then theology and Christology and pneumatology. You say, you use those words with little kids? No, I don't. But we're doing the same thing while we're trying to teach them who God is. I don't want teenagers to graduate from my youth department and have no idea what this book is. And who the God of this book, because that's all this book is, by the way, is the revelation of who God is. Listen, I love this book. I love this book very, very much. But I'm telling you right now, I don't worship this book. This book tells me who my God is. That's what our young people need more than anything. And we are failing the next generation, Brother Josh. I don't mean to get on your case, and I'm, I, I think you're doing a good job. But we're failing if all we're doing is entertaining them. I believe the ministry model is we need, to, we need to evangelize them, educate them, and elevate them. That, that's what we need to be doing. So, well, man, I think we could get a whole lot more teenagers in here if we get a rock band and we just play games all Wednesday night. I mean, preachers, I mean, I, I mean these teenagers, they're bored out of their mind listening to this guy up here talking about how God is in a, dissecting a psalm tonight. And some of them might be, but I'm going to tell you, it's not going to stop me from doing it. Why? Because I want to witness the greatness of my God to every generation. You know, the other thing we need to do is not just tell them who God is. We need to tell them what He's done. And then we need to teach them the how. The how we should respond to His goodness and His faithfulness. I'm going to close with this tonight. The greatest danger a nation faces is not the invading enemy on the outside. It's the eroding enemy on the inside. It's the people who are gradually turning away from the faith of their fathers. I'm not talking tonight, I'm really not talking about the United States of America nationally. I'm talking about God's people in the church house. The greatest th- see, see, guys, what I'm trying to say to you tonight is we sit around sometimes and we talk about, I can't believe this is happening. And did you see what this school's allowing? And did you see what law they passed now? And listen, I've I'm, I'm been out of shape about all that, and I'm not saying we shouldn't raise our voice about it. We should. We absolutely should. But what I am saying is, that's not our greatest threat. Well, it's a threat, but it's not our greatest threat. Our greatest threat is turning away from the faith of our fathers. I want to ask you some questions as we close one last time. And please, don't zip up your Bibles just yet. Does God ever give you goosebumps? Again, I'm not trying to be hooky-spooky. I'm not trying to be charismatic or something like that. I'm just simply saying, when was the last time you found yourself in a room alone with God? You didn't even know what to say to Him. You're just overwhelmed that He was there. You ever find yourself just being in awe? If you say, well, I don't know. I guess I've never experienced that. Then I doubt you've ever really been in His presence. Follow-up question with the sermon. How great is your worship? I mean, do, do you really sing like your God is great? Do you serve like your God is great? Do, do, you, do you just give everything you've got like your God is great?
And when was the last time again? I, I know we're closing out, and I'm not trying to be manipulative tonight, but man, I think it would be wonderful just to see a church pack an altar out and just fall on our knees and just say, oh, God, I'm not asking you for anything. I'm not asking you for anything. I just want to come up and tell you I love you because you are incredible. I don't even know what to say. Number two, how great is your witness? Because, I mean, if you're truly overwhelmed with the greatness of God, you can't but help tell somebody. And I think this is an important question here, too. How are you impacting the next generation? This man impacted me to do something for the Lord. And I'm not the only one. There are people sitting in this room. You know it's true this man did for you. But I'm not trying to puff him up. He has a great God. He has a great Savior that changed him in a great way. And notice what it did in his life. It caused you to want to worship him and to witness for him. And that's what you did in my life. And I want to know, who am I impacting the way you impacted me? And who is that person going to impact the way I impacted them? And on and on and on and on. And truthfully, the greatest ministry I have are the five children that are in my home. I want to impact them that way greater than anybody else. We've got to do that. Oh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for letting me preach a little bit tonight. I hope that I've done a decent job trying to explain to these precious people how amazing and wonderful you are. And I pray that a sense of your presence would just move us and overwhelm us. To fall on our faces to love you and adore you and appreciate you the way that we, we ought. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed tonight, I wonder how many of you would say tonight, you would just say, preacher, I hear what you're saying. Our God is a great God and I recognize it tonight. Thank you for a reminder of something I already know. But thank you for reminding me how great God is. How many would raise your hand as a testimony to that? God bless your hands all over the room. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to cajole. I'm not going to push or prod. There's no need in that. But I'm going to invite you to stand with me, please. Our friend is going to start playing on the piano. Why don't you join me at this altar tonight? Just kneel before God. Remember, that's what an altar is. It's a place to meet God. Let's meet Him here. And just talk about how great He is. Tell Him we love Him. Let's look back on the great deliverance and salvation and provision and just thank Him. And let's get up off of our knees and leave this meeting determined to tell other people how great He is. You can't come forward at this altar, turn around at your seat, sit down at your seat, make an altar there and tell God that you love Him and that He is great and He's greatly to be praised.